Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Philosophy Guy. Hope you are all doing well. So today's guest is it's another, I guess we're doing, I guess just to say, we're doing another interview-based podcast today, and the much-awaited guest is Professor Philip Goff, who is a philosopher and consciousness researcher at Durham University in the UK. Uh, his main focus is currently on integrating consciousness into our scientific worldview. He has recently published the wonderful book, Galileo's Air, Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness, which I highly recommend. I've read myself, and I will have those cool links below for the book and his website. So in today's episode, we talk about the problem with the traditional views uh, or approaches, I guess you could say as well, to consciousness in the kind of materialism and dualism paradigm where, you know, both of those face seemingly inescapable difficulties. Something is missing there, right? So which is where we get into the discussion of panpsychism and consciousness itself. So anyway, I love the conversation with Philip. He's kind of my, he's been my go-to for understanding panpsychism. And for those that have been tuning into me lately know that it's 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 a topic that has been kind of fascinating me lately as well. So, but enough intro. Let's dive in and enter the labyrinth. Yeah, so basically, um, yeah, let's, I want to thank you for coming on, and let's start by kind of giving my audience a little bit of background about yourself and kind of what led you to the discussion of consciousness. Yeah, thanks a lot, Brent. It's good to be here. Uh, I'm a philosopher from Durham University in the far north of the UK, and I guess my main area of interest is consciousness. Um specifically the challenge of trying to understand how consciousness fits into our scientific story of the universe. And, um, you know, I just think it's, I guess it's something that's fascinated me as far back as I can remember, really. I think what's so fascinating is consciousness is, you know, is just so familiar and everyday, you know, nothing is more kind of everyday and mundane than your own feelings and experiences. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, it's the thing that's proved hardest to fit into our scientific story you know that despite great progress of our scientific understanding of the brain we still don't have really even the beginnings of of an explanation of how complex electrochemical signaling is somehow able to give rise to this inner subjective world of colors and feelings and smells and sounds that you know, is the mundane everyday experience we know and love. So yeah, so that's, it's just such a captivating mystery. And that's what I spend my time trying to make some progress on. Yeah. And it's, it's one that I've, you know, I've always kind of been fascinated by it since I got into philosophy, but it's also been a recent one as well, basically with your book. And uh, like, I I think I read Annika Harris's book and, and stuff like that. And it's kind of had this like rejuvenation, which I really enjoyed. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think things have changed. You know, when I was, um, I when I studied philosophy in in the end of the nineties, the dying embers of the twentieth century, <laughs> and um, you know, and I was captivated by the problem of consciousness. But we were taught then, sort of, the only two options were, you know, either you were a dualist, you know, you think consciousness is something 
outside of the physical workings of the body and the brain, sort of outside of the domain of science, or you just have a really com- conventional scientific approach, sometimes called materialism. You know, you just think basically mm-hmm. we can explain it all in terms of, you know, the chemistry of the brain. And, you know, I came to find both of these views had, you know, such deep problems and I got kind of disillusioned with it for a long, for a long time. But I mean, as you say, there's just recently been a resurgence of interest in some alternatives to those, those two standard traditional options. And that's, that's just been really exciting. I think, you know, it really feels like maybe we're entering a sort of a, a new paradigm in some ways. Yeah. And it's, it's been really recent because, and I, I remember you kind of, I've listened to a few of your interviews and read your book, of course. And, you know, when you said that, when you said that story of like how you were interested in consciousness, but then kind of, you know, set it aside because, you know, like they gave us these two options and we don't really know. And, you know, it's kind of like left it there. Right. And even in, I think, I'm trying to remember when I graduated from undergrad, I did a thesis in 2016 with a very similar situation even then. Like I know things were kind of starting to rejuvenate then. But like even then I wrote it on that and I was like, there's, we have this big mystery around it. They really only have like two options they give us and neither of them, like I basically argued yeah. that neither of them really give me any <laughs> satisfaction. Yeah. So I left it as well. But then like your book, I started hearing about your book and listening to you and some other people around this topic and around these kind of new ideas around it or rejuvenation of ideas, I guess you could even say around it. Yeah. Um, oh, thanks. But you know, things have changed so much over like, if you go back a little bit further, you know, for a lot of the 20th century, mm-hmm. consciousness was just a taboo topic that, you know, wasn't thought fitting subject matter for serious science. You know, I guess right. I mean, the climate, the height of this was sort of the behaviorists in the sort of 30s and 40s who thought, you know, the only acceptable focus for us, for the science of the mind was behavior, you know, because right. it's behavior you can measure <laughs> and quantify and, you know, so none of these mysterious inner feelings and experiences, mm. they're not proper science because we can't observe them through a microscope. Uh, but, you know, even the way, like up until the 70s or 80s, I think, you know, people just, you couldn't get a job if you wanted to work on right. the science of consciousness because it was just seen as not real science. And then I think, you know, there was an explosion in the 1990s, maybe that the philosopher, the Australian philosopher, David Chalmers book, The Conscious Mind, mm-hmm. he introduced this phrase, the hard problem of consciousness. And suddenly, not just because of that, but, you know, a lot of other things, it became acceptable to be interested in consciousness scientifically. And, um, and so, you know, a lot changed then, but I still, I think, although people have then began to come to this idea, there is a serious problem here. I still think the common reaction was, well, we just need to do more brain science, neuroscience. We just need to carry on with our traditional methods of investigating the brain and we'll crack it. And I I think people still didn't see for a long time that actually the problem of consciousness is in many important ways radically different to any other scientific challenge. And we really need to address it in a quite different way. And I think that's what people are starting to see more recently. And that's what's caused, as you say, this sort of new renaissance. Yeah. And I, and I agree with that, but I guess we should, let's, let's like take a, like one step back and kind of define what you mean by consciousness. Cause I know that yeah. <laughs> as if we have this rejuvenation, I feel like that term has also started to get thrown out a lot now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's important actually, because it is a pretty ambiguous word and, um, 
a lot of me a lot of people mean something quite sophisticated like awareness of your own existence it's common to to to, to mean that but mm-hmm. that's not the way i mean all i mean by consciousness is um you know right now you're he- he having an auditory experience of my voice speaking to you uh you know a visual experience of the room around you you know if you pay attention you'll notice tactile experiences of the the chair beneath you you know these are all parts of your conscious experience all parts of what it's like to be you so that's all that's all we mean by by consciousness really it's just any kind of subjective experience so this isn't something particularly sophisticated you know it's maybe a, a sheep isn't aware of its own existence but it certainly has some kind of subjective experience if you right. put a knife in a sheep it feels pain you know a sheep when it looks around it has some kind of experience of the world around it so that's all we mean by consciousness what it's like to be you mm-hmm. so yeah some it's some people you know often say it's, it's a mystery what consciousness is no one knows what consciousness is i don't like that way of putting it i mean i think we all know what nothing is more obvious than consciousness all we mean are feelings and experiences you know what pain is when you feel it and that's that's all we mean by consciousness i think the mystery is more how to fit it into science you know how to fit in what we know about ourselves from the inside with what science tells us about the body and the brain from the outside how it all hangs together that's the challenge really right and, and it's and it's yeah i always found that kind of odd where people kind of just dis even science still today is like still dismiss consciousness because it's like it's like the one thing we have to go about the world and see the world and experience the world and it's like how can you how can you say that you know for, i guess maybe this is a segue before i get off on a tangent is like you know how can you say essentially that's an illusion or or you know along those lines when really that's what we have to verify anything in the world whether it's science or just your experience so i guess the segue to that yeah. the question is you know why do philosophers and scientists kind of want to deny the existence of consciousness or maybe better put want to call it an illusion yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that was the the, the majority position. I mean, it is it is a um, there are people. I mean, so yeah, my my friend Keith Frankish mm-hmm. agrees with me that um, that we can't apply our conventional scientific approach to consciousness, and so but but I infer from that that well, we maybe we need to rethink our conventional scientific approach he infers from that that consciousness doesn't exist you know and as you say it's a kind of extraordinary you know what what is what is more evident than i mean i think i've got a lot of great disagreements with rene descartes but i think one thing he did get right is that you know the mind is better known the body you know i can maybe i'm not sure there's a table in front of me here you know maybe i'm in the matrix maybe it's a very vivid dream but I know I'm having an experience of a table, you know, that seems impossible to doubt. But yeah, I don't know. I, I sort of think um, mate, we're going through a phase of history. I mean, this is part of the reason for the, the title of my book, Galileo's Error, that, uh, you know, our, our, our traditional scientific approach has gone so well. Uh, you know, we, we tend to think, oh, we found the truth. You know, and the wonderful technology it produces has a very visceral effect on you. You think, yes, this is it. We found the truth. Um, What I try to argue in my book is it's gone very well precisely because 
it was aimed at a very focused task, a task that was never designed to deal with subjective experience with consciousness. So Galileo was quite explicit about this. Galileo kicks off physical science by saying, right, we need it to be mathematical. We need it to be quantitative. But he understood quite well that you can't capture consciousness in these terms. Consciousness involves qualities like, you know, the redness of a red experience, the smell of coffee, the taste of mint. You know, you can't capture these qualities in a purely quantitative language of mathematical physical science. So Galileo said, right, you know, if we want to, if, if we want a mathematical science, we have to put consciousness outside of the domain of science, right? Right. And, and I think the irony was that limited task, that limited project has gone incredibly well. And now people are saying, oh, well, it must apply to everything. Ironically, it's gone so well precisely because it was never designed to apply to everything. Uh, yeah. So I guess to bring it to your point about the quantitative and qualitative, kind of how do we differentiate between those two features and how it kind of relates to the whole the consciousness question and your kind of theory around it? Yeah. So this is how I, I, I tend to emphasize, you know, one of the ways of seeing, well, I think there are a couple of ways of seeing why consciousness is 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 just so radically different from any other any, any other scientific phenomenon. I mean, one way of putting it is just that consciousness is not publicly observable. Right. Um, you know, and our, our whole scientific method is based on observation. Uh, and I think when we think about observation, we're thinking about what you know, public observation, what can be publicly observed or tested experimentally. Um, the problem with consciousness is it's essentially private. You know, only mm-hmm. you can observe your own experiences. You know, I can I can see the external markers of your experiences, you know, the your tears when you're sad or your smile when you're feeling joy, but I can't look inside your head and, you know, literally see your your happiness or your sadness. Uh, you know, consciousness can be observed only from the inside by the person having the experiences. Um so this really can, you know, so, so science is used to dealing with unobservables, you know, you, mm-hmm. fundamental particles, for example, can't be, uh, you know, directly observed. But in all these cases, um, we postulate unobservables to explain what we can observe. You know, fundamental particles are postulated as part of what's called the standard, the standard model of particle physics that, you know, explains so much that we can observe. In the unique case of consciousness, the thing we are trying to explain can't be publicly observed. And that, you know, that makes it such a, a radically different uh, phenomenon to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you say, yeah, sorry. So that was a bit of a, bit of a uh, digression. The, the other way in which it's radically different is that it seems to have this qualitative nature. Um, so, you know, physical science works from Galileo onwards has worked with a purely quantitative vocabulary, you know, roughly sort of mathematical models built to kind of predict the behavior of nature. Whereas consciousness seems to involve these qualities. If you think about, you know, the blueness of a blue experience or the, the feel of touching ice, uh, you know, you, you can't capture these kind of qualities in that, in that purely quantitative vocabulary of, mathematical science. And so as long as you're 
description of the brain is framed in a purely quantitative in the purely quantitative vocabulary of neuroscience you're always going to leave out these qualities and hence really leave out consciousness itself and and you know this shouldn't surprise us because these this methodology of public observation of quantifying uh was designed for a limited task it, it, it was it wasn't designed for dealing with the uh private qualitative reality of consciousness in fact the scientific revolution was kicked off by taking consciousness outside of the story precisely so we could focus on this more limited task yeah and the reason i wanted you to kind of like get into that separation and differentiate dif- got to how to say that word <laughs> but differentiation um, i think yeah <laughs> um to separate those two because that was what was persuasive to me is is it showed me that science is kind of missing something within that the conversation of consciousness, for example. And it, was, it wasn't getting at something. So I guess this would be a good segue into kind of explaining your theory of panpsychism and how it kind of helps, helps explain that problem, I guess you could say. Maybe that's the best way to put it. Yeah, thanks. I mean, just to emphasize that, I wouldn't want to say, I'd never want to say science can't deal with consciousness Right. What I'd rather yeah. say is we need to rethink what science is yeah. if we want to deal with consciousness, you know, because our our conventional scientific approach was de- wasn't designed for this purpose. But yeah, so so I think um the, well, I mean to start with the, the the kind of definition of panpsychism, I guess our sta- in, in terms of our standard ways of thinking about things, we tend to think that consciousness exists only in the brains of highly evolved organisms and, and therefore consciousness exists only in a tiny part of the universe and only in very recent history in terms, cosmically speaking, at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, but according to panpsychism, consciousness pervades the universe and is a fundamental feature of it. So, so it doesn't literally mean that you know everything is conscious. The basic commitment is that the fundamental building blocks of reality, perhaps electrons or quarks have unimaginably simple forms of experience and and the very complex experience of the human or animal brain is somehow derived from the um, from the very simple experience of the brain's most basic parts. So that's that's the basic idea. Yeah, and I think it'd be good for the audience is is because I know this is a something I've noticed like even online and Twitter and all various places that are having discussions about this conversation and ones I know you've been involved with as well, but people not able to see the difference between like the, a dualist position and a panpsychist position. So maybe if you want to kind of get into that to right. help make that separation for people. Yeah. Yeah. So when, well, what the way to introduce this, I suppose, is the starting point for the panpsychist is that this is the kind of surprising entry point into this. The claim is that physics doesn't really tell us what matter is. And many people find that a really strange claim to make. You know, if you study physics, you seem to learn all these things about Mm -hmm. space and time and matter. But actually what philosophers of science quite generally have realized is that physics, for all its richness, is confined to telling us about the behavior of matter, about what it does so, you know, physics tells us that matter has 
mass and charge and um you know these these properties are completely defined in terms of behavior things like attraction gravitational attraction repulsion resistance to acceleration this is all about what stuff does physics tells us absolutely nothing about what philosophers sometimes call the intrinsic nature of matter you know what matter is in and of itself physics tells us what an electron does it doesn't really tell us what it is you know so sometimes i like to mm-hmm. contrast with a uh, with a chess piece, you know, if you've got a chess piece on the board, you might want to know what it, what it does. You know, if it's a, if it's a bishop, it can move diagonally any number of spaces. But you might also be interested in the chess piece itself, independently of its behavior. You know, is it made of wood? Is it made of plastic? Similarly, when you get down to an electron, you know, you might well be interested in what physics tells you about what an electron does. But you might also be interested in, in what the electron itself, what it independently of its behavior, what is an electron? Unsurprisingly, physics just tells us absolutely nothing here. So it turns out actually there's this huge hole in our scientific story of the universe. Physics tells us what matter does, but it doesn't tell us what it is. And the proposal of the panpsychist is to put consciousness in that hole. Mm. Um, so the idea so we're looking for a place for consciousness we've got this hole let's try and put consciousness in the hole so the idea is that there's just matter uh nothing you know nothing spiritual nothing supernatural but matter can be described from two perspectives physical science describes it as it were from the outside in terms of its behavior uh but matter from the inside is constituted of forms of consciousness so this is so, so dualism, this is a radically non-dualistic theory. So sorry, as you rightly said, dualism is the idea that consciousness is somehow separate from the body and the brain. The, 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 the world is divided up into two radically different kinds of thing. On the one hand, physical things like tables, chairs, atoms, electrons. And on the other hand, conscious souls that are just completely incorporeal, kind of ghostly things. So that's a, that's a radically divided picture of nature. Panpsychism couldn't be more different. There's just one stuff, matter, particles, fields. That's all there is. Nothing spooky, but matter can be described from the outside, but also it can be known from the inside. And your conscious, your living conscious experience in your brain is the inner nature of your brain, matter from the inside, as it were. Uh, yeah, so that was a bit rambling, but no, no, that was good. That's there in the end because I know there's a, I don't know that from what I, the discussions I've had and seen is like they people want to say, you know, panpsychism is essentially a dualist position, but I basically what I'm trying to say is I, I really liked your theory about that because it the way it combines the two or like offers a, a middle ground, I guess you could say, between the science position yeah. of everything being matter and the dualist position. And I guess maybe we want to get into the when I say the the separation between those two sides of why panpsychism solves this problem of consciousness and why it kind of answers or helps maybe shed light on some of the questions we have around it. Yeah, yeah, and you're right. That is a common misunderstanding. The the prominent physicist Sabine Hossenfelder had a had a, bl- a blog post that went a bit viral. Mm. criticizing panpsychism in this way because she was assuming as many people do you hear about panpsychism that electrons are conscious so you tend to think okay so the electron must have its physical properties right 
like mass, spin, and charge, and also these consciousness properties, these mysterious consciousness properties. But that would be a kind of dualism, right? And yeah. and as Hossenfelder pointed out, that would look start to look inconsistent with science because science doesn't seem, you know, when we do our particle physics, we don't seem to find any sign of these mysterious properties beyond the standard ones like mass, spin, and charge, right? But that's not the view. The view is mass, spin, and charge are forms of consciousness. The properties physics tells us about are forms of consciousness. Physics, and that's it's, it's hard to get your head around. How can, we, yeah. how can we make sense of that? You know, when people study physics and they learn about mass and charge, they don't seem to be, le- they don't seem to be learning about kinds of consciousness. But the thought is, well, what, what do, when you really think about what does physics tell us about mass and charge, it just tells us about their behavior. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really tell us what, there is, what, what they actually are in themselves. So that opens up the possibility that they might be forms of consciousness. Physics tells us what they do, but what they are in their essential nature are forms of consciousness. Okay, but so so that's but but why take this view seriously? Why does this help? Why mm-hmm. does this shed light? Um, you know, so I, I guess that we know that consciousness exists. That's well, as as we've already discussed, some people deny that, but most of us <laughs> take it as obvious right. that you know pain exists. Uh, you know, this is why it's such a troubling phenomenon. You know, with there are other troubling phenomena like free will, you right. know, that are hard to integrate into science. But there it's at least an option to say maybe it doesn't exist, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe we feel like we're free and we're not really. Maybe it's an illusion. And we can wrap our the head idea, around that idea. Yeah, like, yeah this we can actually. Is, it's harder for people. We, we, yeah. <laughs> we can argue about that. But the idea that your pain is an illusion that you right. think you're in pain, but you're not really is, is a bit difficult to make sense of anyway. But so, so we have to fit it into our story of the universe somehow. Uh, and, you know, we just have to look at the options and the two conventional options for the reasons we've discussed materialism on the one hand, dualism on the other, you know, just have such deep difficulties and, and the attraction of panpsychism wacky as it sounds is it just it just avoids the difficulties of of the more conventional approaches um yeah i agree and I, and the one example i always i always like that you i've heard you say and maybe we want to get into this is kind of how it, it really resonated with me as well is like the dualist position and the materialist position when they still want to be able to discuss consciousness, dualists, of course they do because that's like their main topic. But even the materialists, who's trying to push back against panpsychism, for example. But your point about how both of those sides say essentially it's a switch that flips on. To me, that really resonated with me because because panpsychism doesn't necessarily fall into that problem or category of having that issue because it's part of. The theory, I guess you could say. I don't know if that's the best way to say it. So maybe if you want to kind of get into that as well. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, as you say, yeah, dualists. I mean, well, maybe we should just touch on the on the problems of dualism. So I mean, I guess yeah. the problems of dualism are a more straightforward scientific nature that, you know, although dualists think the mind and the brain are, are different, they think they stand in it in a close, intimate relationship. You know, the, the mind affects the brain, the brain affects the mind or right. soul, if you like. The soul 
the soul affects the brain, the brain affects the soul, you know, so if the soul wants you to move your arm up, it makes changes in the brain and your arm goes up. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of standard dualist view. But I thought, you know, if, if there was an immaterial soul impacting on our brain every second of waking life, you know, you'd think that'd really show up in our neuroscience, you know, there'd be all kinds of things happening in the brain that that had no physical explanation it'd be like a poltergeist was praying with the playing with the brain (laughs) praying with the brain i was gonna say but uh (laughs) you know that's just not what we we seem to find so so you know it's it looks like you know on your on the one hand our, our science gives us reason to doubt the belief in the soul but on the other hand the tools of conventional science for the reason we've discussed just just aren't able to deal with this phenomenon so so we need we need to look for another approach but yeah that's that i mean as you say it's sort of you know most you know what neuroscience is very good at is is and what neuroscience has made great progress on is correlating brain activity with certain kinds of experience we've learned so much about what has to go on in the brain to get you conscious experience, you know, and, and, you know, one leading theory is the global workspace theory, that it's something to do with kinds of information that are, as it were, broadcast throughout the whole brain. So some bits of information just go to some regions of the brain and not others, but some kinds of information go kind of all over the brain. Daniel Dennett referred to this as fame in the brain. It's like, all you know it's just kind of broadcast all over the brain and that seems to correlate with consciousness um so so we've made great progress on that but this still leads the question okay but why why does that kind of brain activity correlate with some kind of conscious experience and um, as you say you know the conventional standard approach seems to say oh it's just a miracle happens there and consciousness emerges whereas you know the, the panpsychist puts consciousness in there from the start right that are the basic constituents of matter have incredibly simple forms of experience and then over millions of years of evolution by natural selection those very simple forms of subjective experience are molded into the very complicated rich experience that human beings enjoy you know some people say well that's cheating right you're not really explaining it if you put it there all along but you know there's there's plenty of precedent in science for what we call non-reductive explanations where you you don't explain the phenomenon in terms of something else. You postulate simple forms of it and, and, and you build up from there. So Max, the, our, our theory of electromagnetism in the 19th century was a bit like this. We didn't explain electricity and magnetism in terms of things we already believed in. We postulated basic electromagnetic properties and laws and built up from there so for the panpsychist the final theory of consciousness when it eventually comes along it's not going to explain consciousness in terms of something else it's going to postulate simple forms of consciousness and build up to the kind of very complex consciousness we know and love yeah and so i guess also maybe one more type of to like kind of cover the basis for panpsychism before we like shift the conversation is is why should consciousness be this kind of what why or how do I want to say this? Why is consciousness an an intrinsic nature, for example? And why is it yeah. is it a good candidate for being 
the intrinsic nature for reality. And I know we kind of probably alluded to this a little bit, but maybe kind of like pinpointing why that's important. Yeah, well, I mean, one way of approaching this is just that we're looking for a place for consciousness. That's that's the challenge. We, right. we know it exists. It must fit into reality somehow. But it's a challenge to see how it does fit. You know, we try to fit it in the conventional scientific story. That doesn't work because consciousness is, has this qualitative nature, whereas our conventional scientific approach just deals with quantitative phenomenon or consciousness is private and unobservable, whereas conventional scientific phenomenon are, are public and observable. Um, at least the data are, uh, or we try to put it outside of the brain and the soul. That doesn't seem to be tenable either. So it's where the hell do we put it? We know it has to go somewhere, but where right. do we put it? So, and then it turns out independently that there's this, that there is a hole in our scientific story that science tells us the behavior of matter, but doesn't tell us its intrinsic nature. So then you think, oh, there's a place we can put it and we can solve both these problems at once. You know, we can fill in the detail about what the intrinsic nature of matter is and we can find a place for consciousness. So you could just see it that way. But but your question was, you know, as I understood it, you know, is there anything about consciousness that makes it suited for being the intrinsic nature of matter. Yeah. And I suppose um, we have a way of thinking about consciousness that's not just in terms of what it does. You know, when, when we think about mass, if you look at what science tells you about mass, it's, it's just what it does. It, uh, you know, th- things with more mass are heavier. They, they, they have greater gravitational attraction and they resist acceleration there it's harder to get them to move or to stop or to change direction or charge, you know, charge is just about attraction and repulsion, like charges repel opposites attract. It's all about behavior. But when you think about, let's say your pain, uh, you might think about what it does, you know, you, you know, that it makes you scream and run away, but you can also just think about it in terms of how it feels, the kind of, intrinsic character of the pain or you know the redness of your red experience and this is a way of thinking about it that's not just about what it does um you know i'm inclined to think this is the only feature of physical reality that we do have a positive grip on that's not just what it does all the rest of science is just what stuff does with consciousness we we have more of a grip on its nature we know we know about its qualitative character, we, and that's a positive understanding of it. Not, it's not just about behavior. So, uh, so yeah. So I think it's it's part of how our you know our access to consciousness, our grip on it, is so much different. That's another way of seeing how it's so different to our grip on uh, on other scientific phenomena. Yeah, that's a good way to. Yeah, I like how you explain that because. So I guess my related question to that too is, is and something that I personally, because I'm interested in this topic and also trying to explain it to people, but also maybe even being persuasive to people. So I guess where have you had success with this in the sense of, you know, I don't, I don't know how to phrase this, where consciousness kind of being something fundamental, that's something people have a hard time accepting still. Yeah. And kind of maybe like getting into why that is that's a hard people have a hard time accepting 
and in the fields of science, for example, and kind of what is a persuasive way to not necessarily like convince them of our view or whatever, but like just making them at least skeptical of the position they hold of where, oh, no, 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 no. There's no way that's like a fundamental part. Yeah, well, this is why I spend a lot of my life trying to work out how best to do. And I think so you're I'm the perfect candidate better. to explain. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of my job is academic work, getting into the fiddly arguments. But more and more, I do want to try to reach out to a broader audience and think, you know, so I suppose one problem is there are certain cultural connotations of panpsychism, this sort of new age associations. And, yeah. Um, <laughs> And there, you know, I just try and point out, well, you know, you you should judge a view not by its cultural associations, but by its explanatory power. You know, just what what is this view trying to do? What is it trying to explain? Uh, You know, judge it on that basis. You know, it's not, it's kind of irrational in a way just to say, (laughs) you know, Oh, it has this these these kooky connotations. So, you know, that's just a historical accident. It, you know, uh, I mean, the other co- the, the question I get most commonly on Twitter, <laughs> among <laughs> other places, is, well, you know, how do you test this? How do you, you know, how do you, how how can you, how can you you prove it in that sense? And um, I think my answer to that is to say, well, it depends what you mean by testing. As I say, you know, when we standardly think about testing, we think about public observation. You know, what can be publicly observed or, or, or see, you know, evidence of from the outside. And I think that that approach is is inappropriate for consciousness because consciousness can't be publicly observed. You know, if you look in someone's head, you can't see their feelings and experiences. If you were to stick rigorously to that methodology, you wouldn't believe in consciousness. You'd have no grounds to postulate in consciousness. You know, the philosopher Daniel Dennett, who's one of the people who doesn't believe in consciousness, is wonderfully consistent about this. He says, you know, I only believe in what I can know about on the basis of public observation, you know? So mm-hmm. all I'm interested in is behavior. You know, the, the only data for science of consciousness is publicly observable behavior, right? So if you stick rigidly to that, you're not going to believe in consciousness. So I think we have to have a more expansive conception of what testing is. We have to go, so so our our standard approach is what's the simplest theory consistent with what can be publicly observed. But I think we need to think what's the simplest theory consistent with what we can publicly observe and what we can privately observe, you know, the, the reality of our own feelings and experiences. Um, and we just have to look at the different options, you know, materialism, dualism, panpsychism, and um, the other options have such deep difficulties that panpsychism, wacky as it sounds, avoids. And so, you know, sometimes I think it's like the uh, the Sherlock Holmes line where he says, what is this line now? What, once you've ruled out the impossible, what remains, no matter how unlikely, must be the truth. You know, I think kind of think oh, that's good. panpsychism. I like that. <laughs> The other alternatives just are so problematic that this that this looks a sort of almost a process of elimination. Um, but yeah, I just I guess I just try to press people, and this is what I'm more passionate about than really panpsychism. You know, just just how radically different this is from other scientific problems. 
Uh, and I think that's probably the most effective way of of getting people to take this view a little bit more seriously. Yeah, and, and I've found as well uh, in discussions and, and whatnot, and also just persuasive to me, I guess, is it's not necessarily like ex- accepting panpsychism as true, for example. It's more of like just being willing to be be open to it, I guess, because what I what I found is panpsychism is a good tool to like open the discussion for the problems that the dualist position has, for example, and the materialist position has, for example, and what they're not able to answer and just kind of the, yeah. the problems that their theories have as well. So, you know, panpsychism, you don't even have to accept it. It's more of like, maybe it's a way to, to get people open to this conversation around consciousness in the sense of, hey, maybe we need to recalibrate the discussion so that we can learn more about consciousness. Maybe we can figure out this whole thing of subjective experiences, which is what we see the world through, right? So maybe maybe that kind yeah. of idea, I guess, as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, who knows what the truth is? You know, you know I exactly. think some yeah. people have this idea, you know, that that any scientist would disagree with, you know, that science proves things and we can demonstrate right. the truth. And And I think, you know, sometimes this gets into people's identity and they like that they like this sense that i I, you know i i I follow science and that's where the truth is and you know people talk about religion as a crutch but i think a certain kind of scientism can be a sort Mm -hmm. of crutch and people get very kind of sensitive about it but um but you know i mean science is informed guesswork you know we, we 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 have the data and yeah, I think people kind of fetishize testing as well. Yeah, so I, I need to think that out. To articulate this, like you know, we we have, we test and we prove it. But you know what we what we do is we have the data, and and you know there are always an infinite number of theories consistent with the data. You could always come up with any kind of wacky ad hoc theory. So we we don't just get, you know we try to find the simplest, uh, most kind of elegant and parsimonious theory that accounts for the data. Um. And that's what we're doing with with consciousness as well. It's just I think that the we need to broaden what the data are. You know, if we generally think of data as what can be publicly observed, but consciousness can't be publicly observed. But we know it's real, right? Yeah. So, so you can say, well, but let's pretend it doesn't exist. You know, that's what we tried to do for much of the twentieth century. I just pretend it doesn't exist. Unfortunately, it's hard to pretend you don't have feelings. So, so then we have to think, well. The data are not just what can be publicly observed, but you know the reality of subjective experience. That's a datum as well. And then we just have to try and work out which hypothesis a human being has come up with that is the simplest theory that can account for both what we know about uh, through experiments, through public observation, and this other thing we know about the reality of consciousness. Um, and you know, maybe, maybe, maybe the simplest theory we can come up with won't be true. And, but, uh, you know, that, that, that's all, that's, that, that's all the scientific methods ever been. And that's really all we can do to try and have our best guess. But yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I like your point about kind of people almost get this like a religion affiliation or sense, I guess you could say around, uh, science and, and the theories and obviously like big proponent of a science and, love the work that it does and it's made a lot of progress for us. But yeah, it's still a good point because I think kind of like you alluded to or said earlier is science has had so much success 
And I think you're right where like that makes it hard for people to accept this idea that isn't really accepted by science. The materialist worldview is accepted by science. So this, this view that comes in that kind of alters that a little bit still kind of, you know, it still agrees with science in a lot of ways. Right. But it's, it's this vastly different thing. And they just want to say, Oh, science has done so well so far and we, it's going to keep going and it's just going to answer all our questions around consciousness as well. So I think, yeah, that's kind of the, the yeah. big one to raise people's skepticism is because science has been so successful. Yeah. I mean, people have this idea that, you know, neuroscience supports materialism. But I mean, the neuroscience is just neutral on all these theories. That's, a, that's mm-hmm. actually a very important thing to press as well. Uh, and people are quite surprised by what, you know, what neuroscience gives us are correlations you know you can examine someone's brain you can scan someone's brain with fmri scanner or or eg and um and then you can ask them you you have to ask them what you you can't see their consciousness so you have to you ask them what they're feeling you look at their brain and you can correlate the two you can say oh wow when people have this kind of activity in this region of the brain they 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 feel hunger or they see colors or something and that's really important data uh and, and that's what, but th- that's the limits of what we can do experimentally because consciousness is not publicly observable. All we can do is scan people's brains and ask them. Uh, but that's just neutral on all these theories. That is not a theory of consciousness. What a theory of consciousness ultimately is, is an explanation of those correlations. Why is it that these kinds of brain activity go along with certain kinds of experience? Right. And, and neuroscience can't give us that. Neuroscience just gives us more correlations. So, so the, the 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 science is crucial, but it's it's just neutral on materialism, dualism, panpsychism. Uh, you know, but I, I suppose I'm saying, I suppose some people get a bit nervous about moving away again from what you can straightforwardly experimentally test. We have a similar thing, I think, in quantum mechanics, where um, you know, quantum mechanics is one of our most uh, quantum mechanics is one of our most successful scientific theories in terms of prediction, you know, and all, almost all of our modern technology is based on it. You know, the problem is no one knows what the hell that theory <laughs> is telling us about reality, right. you know, and there are all these different interpretations. And and then a lot of scientists, so, so you know, some scientists want to say, well, which of those theory, which of those interpretations of quantum mechanics is correct? Which is the true theory of reality? This is called foundations of quantum mechanics in a scientific context but other scientists say shut up that's a stupid question <laughs> just do the experiments it works the equations work it's called sometimes called the, the shut up and calculate approach uh, and in fact you know i the the, the the physicist sean carroll on his podcast has talked a lot about how this is this was a taboo thing and people couldn't get jobs if they if they wanted to know what quantum mechanics is telling us about reality because people get nervous when you start to move away from what can be directly tested. Right. Um, and it's a very, very similar issue in uh, consciousness, I think. But the sad thing is, I would love it if, if all questions could be answered with an experiment. But unfortunately, there always have been and there always will be questions that you can't straightforwardly answer with an experiment. It doesn't mean we're just randomly guessing. You know, there are constrained ways of of trying to answer these questions, but it's not as simple as just as just doing an experiment. And um, you know, 
that's life. That's the human situation. We either pretend consciousness doesn't exist or we pretend, you know, I don't know what you pretend in the quantum mechanics case, uh, pretend there's no reality or something. I mean, that was, I guess that was the original approach and, you know, that it's stupid to ask questions about the nature of reality. <laughs> or we we take these questions seriously and we we have our best stab at them and, you know, who knows if we'll get to the truth, but we can give it a go. Yeah, and I, I fully agree. And I think that is one of the big problems is, you know, people even in the fields of science, they, you know, they want to, they want to remain skeptical. I think they will admit that and they know that. However, there is something about us as humans that we see all around us that we do. We, we kind of fear kind of the mystery and the unknown because we want to like feel like we're grasping onto something, some sort of knowledge of something and, and progress towards something. So when you kind of put a wrench in that and say, oh, actually we we might be completely wrong here or we need we need to recalibrate here. It kind wow. of destroys that whole whole system for them. And I think that's kind of people's inclination is to avoid doing that in a way. Um, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. I mean, but yeah, yeah, people are resistant to people are naturally conservative. Human beings yeah. always think <laughs> they're at the, the end, at the end of history. You know, we're basically, you know, no one thinks we've got all the science answered, but people think, yeah, we've basically got the right approach right. now. And, you know, this guy wrote the end of history. What was his name? Fukuyama. Was it yeah. Fukuyama? I think the, so. Uh, after the Cold War saying, you know, we basically know the right, right politics now. Liberal capitalist democracy is won. And that's, uh, you know, people always think that they're end of history. People thought that in Galileo's time, at the start of the scientific revolution, you know, that they'd followed the philosophy of Aristotle, you know, for hundreds of years. And they thought, that's the truth. And Galileo starts <laughs> saying these crazy things like we need mathematical physics and uh, may- maybe the earth isn't the center of the universe and people are resistant to that and you know we tend to think oh how stupid they were you know in these old times but i think you know people are equally equally resistant now um but you know i, I think this stuff is important i think especially with consciousness because i think consciousness is you know at the root of human identity you know fundamentally we think of ourselves as beings with experiences and feelings and that's how we relate to each other and think you know that's a very important part of our self-understanding and i I believe our our official scientific worldview does not have a place for consciousness and i think this can lead to a deep sense of alienation you know i think we know we have feelings and experiences but our official scientific worldview tells us that all that's in our heads is electrochemical signaling and i think many of us know intuitively Mm -hmm. That's not the same thing. Uh, and I think people, you know, are, are right in thinking that. So, yeah. So I think, you know, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on in the world at the moment. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's, I, you know, I, I mean, I, I think there's a political and economic reasons for that. But I, I do wonder whether a small part of that is this sense that we don't understand how we fit into the universe that that comes with this the fact that you know our standard scientific story doesn't have a place for feelings and experiences and you know i wonder whether the attraction of nationalism or even fascism is is that it tells you you know something about your place in the universe you know your place in the world how you fit in and right i wonder whether that is something to do with you know our scientific story doesn't fit with the fundamental way in which we think of ourselves as human beings. Yeah, that's a that's a really, 
really good point because it kind of goes back to what we said earlier, I think too, is, you know, it, when, when you start solving mysteries of the universe, I guess you could say, I feel like people start putting, you know, purpose and meaning into that. Like, oh, like we're doing, like, this is our calling as humans is to solve these problems. So then when you recreate new ones or, or new mysteries or whatever, they kind of want to push back against those because it kind of goes against what they think is their calling in a sense. And, and I I also like your point about kind of, you know, it kind of goes back to humans thinking, they're always thinking each generation's thinking like, oh, we're like the end of history. And the new one I've been hearing, which I find fascinating, it's almost like they in in some way flip it where they admit we don't know a lot about the universe, but they want to say that we, we as humans know all that we can know as humans. So they want to say we're in the end of history of getting knowledge that we can comprehend. And I always found that one kind of silly yeah. as well, because it's to me, it's like yeah. a workaround to say the same thing. Like, Oh, we're, we're the last ones. Like we're the last frontier. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I've always been fascinated yeah. by that as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, there is a position on consciousness, um, came known as Mysterianism. It was named after the, the first Latin American band to have, a, a number one hit in the U S was, wow. uh, the new Mysterians. And uh, this philosophical position interesting. <laughs> was was named after this band <laughs> by some uh, academics. You know, they try to think they're funny or something. Um, but anyway, this is perhaps most famously defended by Colin McGinn at this paper. Uh, can we explain? Can we solve the mind-body problem? From was this the eighties? I think. And um, yeah, this is the view that human beings are just not cognitively built to solve the problem of consciousness. You know, just like dogs can't do mathematics, Mm -hmm. you know, human beings just can't, you know, the, the brains are not built to deal with this problem. A part of it, I think he thought that, you know, because we, we understand physical things like brains from the outside with, you know, our senses. We understand consciousness sort of from the inside. And these are, we can't fit these things together. So he had a quite interesting argument. Uh, and he also talks quite, I've heard him talk about how, um, how, what a relief it was when he came up with this theory. Because it just, you know, like so many people get so wrapped up with consciousness and it just really troubled him. And he decided that, this was the solution that there was an answer, maybe, you know, maybe a quite simple answer, but humans just don't have the capacity to solve the problem. And he just said it was just such a relief and he could sort of live at peace with himself <laughs> with this. And as it kind of, a lot of the emotions, as you said, I described in my book about learning about panpsychism, you know, that gave me, I mean, it's a much more positive theory, I think, but it gave me a way of, you know, feeling intellectually at peace you know this thing that had troubled me and kept me awake and i tried to not think about and um but yes yeah, so, i mean i don't know that's an interesting position i think stephen pinker actually you, you think of as very scientistic as has that kind of position i believe i think i heard him give a talk on that once interesting. I, I kind of like that position a little bit more than the the conventional materialist i prefer it certainly to denying the existence of consciousness i'd rather someone said right. consciousness exists human beings can't make sense of it that seems to me yeah. more, a better position than. I and could, also, yeah, I, I could I see I, the see the the sway of that. I guess you could say where I could yeah. be convinced by that. Um, At least we don't have to say nobody's ever felt pain. And then, I mean, even and then the position, the more conventional materialist position that 
oh, we just need to carry on with our standard scientific approach and we'll solve it. I mean, that just seems to me so, you know, misunderstanding the nature of the phenomenon that it's, you know, it's right. so different in so many ways that it's not publicly observable, that it, it can't be, it has this qualitative nature that can't be captured in mathematics. It's so, it's so radically different from normal standard scientific phenomena that, you know, at least the position that, uh, you know, we'll never solve it takes the takes the phenomenon seriously. Although, it, as you say, it's kind of like giving up too quickly. And yeah, uh, you know what Colin exactly. McGinn says about panpsychism? Actually, he just says he, he just said in an academic paper. Actually, oh, it's just people who've smoked too much marijuana. <laughs> and, <you> know, <laughs> uh, so he actually said that actually in an academic paper. That's, that, that's uh, crazy. Yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> Oh man. Yeah. So, you know, but what is what is that? That's just kind of the cultural associations. That you know, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, look, and, and maybe look, like look a, at the view on its own terms. Yeah, maybe like a closing thing kind of around that topic is because I, I, I kind of have, you know, a, people in kind of in the I guess the I don't I don't I hate saying the phrase new age spirituality movement, but they're kind of they're interested in that stuff, the psychedelic community, altered yeah. states community, all that good stuff. Um, and, and something I find that maybe could persuade people of, cause I agree with you, people hear panpsychism and they want to dismiss it because, oh, like that community likes it. So therefore it's, yeah. it's wrong. Um, but I think it kind of gets to where it's not necessarily like you need to, to take what, what they say as true. It's more, you know, listening to what, what that community says and their experiences in altered states and how it kind of alters their consciousness in a sense. Yeah. And all that really tells us is kind of gets back to maybe what the importance of panpsychism is, is it shows us that what we're experiencing on the everyday, there's something, yeah. something that's we're we're in a sense missing because there's something more out there. So like when you get to the altered states, you're like, whoa, like it's a, yeah, it's absolutely. like some, something completely different that alters you. And it kind of just raises all these questions for you around consciousness and I think that's why that community, it's appealing to them, but it it's also shows you that maybe the, the materialist p people shouldn't dismiss them because it's more of making you aware that something yeah. is missing. And maybe that's the way to absolutely, say it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. My, um, yeah, I mean, I, I come out of, um, a tradition called analytic philosophy, you know, which mm -hmm. is traditionally a very dry, logical science based, um, approach and but i found it wonderful actually that how come out of that are people defending what are thought of as new age topics you know but defending it in a really rigorous analytic way uh mm -hmm. philosopher miriel bahari australian philosopher defending a kind of uh Vedantic Hindu inspired view that sort of universal consciousness underlies all things, uh, defending this on the basis of the testimony of meditators, but just defending it, you know, in ultrally rigorous analytic way, right. uh, looking at the epistemology of taking the testimony of of meditators seriously and and you know and why not you know why can't you know what's important is that you you deal with things rigorously and you know you know. Uh, deal with the with the topic properly, but the idea that some topics 
I mean, you know, in a way, it's like it, it, the term new age works a little bit like racist terms, you know, that <laughs> on the one hand, I mean, a racist term, on the one hand, it picks out a certain ethnic group. But on the other hand, it has all these connotations, right. these, you know, negative connotations. I think the term new age picks out certain views by their content, you know, but then says, oh, you know, and it's kind of fluffy and stupid. And, you right. know, and, and it, you know, I wonder how much of that is the, you know, the political movement of the 60s and part of washing that down and stuff. And uh, I mean, like, I mean, there is a lot over, of, yeah. there is, there is a lot of non-rigorous work in that area but there's a lot of non-rigorous work in in every area of philosophy and i don't see why you can't defend the view that you know altered states of consciousness reveal um deep fundamental facts about reality in a rigorous way uh and actually i talk in the final chapter of my book a little bit mm -hmm. about how from a panpsychist perspective that you know fits a lot better you know it, so you know as i'm always keen to emphasize that a lot, you can be defend panpsychism and just have no spiritual inclination at all. You're just trying to explain the natural phenomenon of consciousness. But um, if if you do independently have certain spiritual convictions, I suppose they fit better with a panpsychist worldview. You know, so if you're if you're a materialist, maybe you have to think mystical experiences are just sort of delusions, funny things in the brain. But mm -hmm. but if you already think the fundamental nature of reality involves conscious experience, uh, then, you know, these mystical experiences that seem to reveal, I don't know, that there's some kind of universal consciousness underlying all things, you know, it's, it's, it's less of a, it's less of a, a jump to take those kind of experiences seriously. Although, although many panpsychists like David Chalmers and Luke Roloffs are just, you know, have no time for any of that. So, yeah. But yeah, yeah. It's uh, we shouldn't let people bully us out of positions by these kind of derogatory labels. Just as long as stuff's done rigorously, I'm 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 happy to entertain. Agreed. It. And also just being willing to explore new ideas, and that's why absolutely. Yeah, and that's why I thought I should bring up the point about spirituality because yeah, I feel like it is like and like I said, I'm not like fully into some of the, the wacky woo-woo stuff in there either, but it's yeah. still like, you know, what what are they saying? And like, why can't you try to yeah. like see if it's true and try to do a rigorous analysis on what that actually means? And that's, and that's also why I've been like fascinated with that side of things too, is because like you kind of alluded to is there's people coming out now trying to defend certain positions that have been thought of by that side. And I found, I have found that fascinating as well. So, but yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's a good into the conversation for today and yeah i really really enjoyed it and i'm glad you came on but uh where where can people find you find your book and all that good stuff brilliant um yeah well i've got a website philip philip philosophy.com is that it and uh <laughs> twitter i spend a lot of time a lot of time too much time arguing with people on twitter philip <laughs> underscore goff philip with one l and G-O-F-F, -F, Foxtrot, Foxtrot. Um, and I've got the worst title blog in the world, Conscience and Consciousness. But nice. anyway, that's linked to from a website. But I just use that to talk about consciousness or just to vent my anger about politics. <laughs> uh, I'm, quite, I'm, I'm quite obsessed with politics. And, um, 
cool. So yeah, no thanks. This has been really, I've really, I've really enjoyed this. I've got slightly more intoxicated as it's gone on. I've been drinking wine, but um, yeah, that, that's that, been it really always fun. helps, thanks man. For, <laughs> for chat. Cool.